the minute the door opens and you step out onto the battlefield, you're no longer protected. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Matthew D. Welder to War Docs. Dr. Welder is a board-certified anesthesia provider and retired Army combat veteran, internationally recognized as an innovative leader in operational readiness. He has deployed multiple times and currently serves as a special assistant to the Uniformed Services University President for Operational Medicine. You can learn more about his bio on wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, Dr. Welder describes the training pathway and role of CRNAs in the military. He provides lessons learned and insights from his experiences deploying with Tier 1 Special Operations Units at the tip of the spear, as well as providing care at Level 3 Combat Support Hospitals. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Matthew D. Welder to Wardox. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. I look forward to the conversation. Matt, tell us what was your pathway to joining military medicine? Well, it's an interesting pathway because I actually went to college to be a graphic designer, commercial art back then. And after completing my two-year degree, I transferred to Iowa State to become an architectural engineer. And so I trained at Iowa State. It happened to be during the time that that computer graphics and, and computer CAD was coming into, into vogue. And I was trained under traditional pen and pencil. So trying to find a job post-graduation was difficult. And living in Iowa on a farm, I had seen at the recruiting station that they would pay for college education. And so I went in, talked to the recruiter and decided to enlist in the army. I knew absolutely nothing about medicine. I was raised on a farm with three older brothers. And my mom was a nurse, but not in the traditional sense. Back in the 50s, all of her training was through on-the-job training. And she worked for our local doctor for many years and patched us boys up time and time again. But that was the extent of my, my medical knowledge is that my mom had done it for years. So when I went through the recruiting station, of course, they have you take the vocational aptitude test and they basically told me I was going to be an army medic. And I explained to the recruiter that I didn't know anything about medicine, had no formal training in medicine. And the response was, don't worry, the army will teach you. So they sent me off to basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. I graduated, went to San Antonio to be a medic. And for those that graduated in the top tier, you could pick a specialty. So I actually chose 91 Echo, which was dental specialist, and completed that training and went on to get my first set of orders at School Phil Barracks Main Dental Clinic in Hawaii. So that was a big plus. I was able to call back to my wife and two children at the time and inform them that, that we were moving to Hawaii. So that was my introduction into military medicine. I really never had considered being in the medical field. And the Army kind of put that opportunity in front of me, and I ran with it. You became a dental technician. How did you get interested in nursing? And, and tell us how that career pathway started. I became this dental tech. I get my orders to Schofield Barracks Main Dental Clinic. And it was there that I met then Colonel Richard Shipley, who was the dentist and was the commander of DENCOM. And when I did my intake interview, he said, I don't understand why are you a private first class? You have a college degree. Why didn't you come in as, as an officer? Well, in Iowa, there weren't any army bases. So I didn't have a background. I didn't really understand what being in the military was. So my entire exposure was a recruiter's office, basic training, advanced instructional training. And now I'm in Hawaii at my first duty station. And he informed me that the Army's really in need of nurses. And my response was, well, I don't think I want to be a nurse. And he said, well, you know, I want to take you to Tripler and kind of let you meet some nurses and some different specialties. And this was like day one in 
in Hawaii, and he informed me about a program called the AMED Enlisted Commissioning Program, where you would take enlisted soldiers and they would commission and they would have to go back to school to be a nurse. And as soon as you completed nursing school, you would commission to a second lieutenant and start your career as a nurse. So really, I was only in Hawaii for about 18 months. And during that 18 months, in the first three months, I applied to the AMED Enlisted Commissioning Program and was accepted. So the rest of the time, I was waiting basically to start nursing school. So it was his introduction to the program that set me on that course to become a nurse. So once you became a nurse, you then went to Walter Reed and then started working as a nurse. How did you get involved in critical care nursing? Because that seems to be the pathway that you ultimately started going down. So it, it starts back in Hawaii. My wife was pregnant for our third child, and she was delivering that child at Triple Army Medical Center. And it was a Triple Army Medical Center during the delivery that a young a student registered nurse anesthetist came into the room to place my wife's epidural. And I struck up a conversation and he informed me he was a nurse. I told him, well, that's great. I'm going to nursing school. And I said, what do you do? And so he talked to me a little bit about nurse anesthesia. He was in training himself in his residency phase. And my wife was like, okay, let's finish the conversation. I want to get my epidural. And it was at that moment, as soon as the epidural went in, my wife was out of pain. It clicked. I wanted to do this. This student nurse anesthetist had the ability in about 10 minutes to take my wife who was writhing from pain to pain-free. And that intrigued me. And that became my sole focus. So I went, became a nurse, went to Grandview College in Iowa. I was able to move back to my home state, actually live in my hometown. My wife attended nursing school with me. she had always wanted to be a nurse. And when I graduated, I went to Walter Reed. As I'm going up to, to the floor, because I was assigned to Ward 65, which was a surgical subspecialty clinic, gynecology, oncology, a lot of the subspecialties would send their patients up to the ward. And on my way up there, I got off the elevator, actually on the wrong floor, and I saw a graduate school of nurse anesthesia. And there was a gentleman sitting behind the desk who I later found out was the director. And I walked in and introduced myself and said, where do I sign up? And he looked at my rank, asked me how long I had been a nurse. I said, well, in fact, I had graduated just a few weeks earlier, and he started laughing. He's like, well, you have to have experience to be a nurse anesthetist. And I said, well, what kind of experience is required? And he goes, well, you have to be an ICU nurse. And I said, well, they didn't assign me to the ICU. Do you have the power to make that happen? Now, remember, I'm still kind of novel to the whole military, the rank, how this whole system works, because I had a rather unusual entry into the military. And he said, yeah, there's a 16-week course at Walter Reed, but it's years backlog for nurses trying to get in it. And I asked him where it was. He told me what building it was in. This is old Walter Reed. And I immediately walked over. I was heading up to my first day on the job, and I basically paused, redirected, and went to building one, which is where the ICU course was. And I walked in and asked to speak to who was in charge and told them who I was. And I said, I'm on the fast track to anesthesia school. And they're like, we've never heard of it. And I said, well, apparently part of this track requires you to be an ICU nurse. So let's go ahead and sign me up. When's the next course? So, well, the next course is in three months, but your head nurse has to approve it. And I said, well, let me take care of that. Just go ahead and put my name on the list. And I went up to meet my head nurse who happened to be transitioning at that time. And I informed her that I'm on this this program that I had actually created called the Fast Track to Anesthesia School and that I needed to be an ICU nurse because that's what I was told. So she said, well, I've never heard of it, but if that's what you need to do, then we'll get you signed up. So she signed off on me going to the ICU course after only being a Walter Reed just a few months. And so I attended that course and it was 16 weeks long, fantastic course. I mean, how how the military can take somebody that really knows nothing about medicine, a complete foreign language, and as, as a private, teach you how to be a medic, how to be a dental specialist. Then you come into nursing, and then in 16 weeks, they transform relatively a guy that didn't know anything about medicine into this ICU nurse, but they did. And so the day I graduated, my wife and mom and dad and kids were there. And I said, well, I got to stop down to talk to this colonel because the requirement was to be an ICU nurse. So I literally went into his office and 
I said, hey, I'm an ICU nurse. I'm assigned to the medical intensive care, pediatric intensive care, and I need to sign up for anesthesia school. And he's like, weren't you just in my office just a few months ago? I'm like, yes, I was. Well, how did you become an ICU nurse? I went to the course. You told me about it. He had told me you need four years of ICU experience, which really kind of messed up my whole fast track. Maybe you could have done was you're part of the FTTAS program, which is the fast track to anesthesia school. I've often thought about putting those initials after my name because I would be the one and only graduate of that course. So now you got to do four years. Now I got to do four years. So I got into the medical intensive care and pediatrics and it hit me like a sledgehammer. I really, at that point in my life, knew nothing about medicine. And although I had studied, I had taken college classes, I hadn't really taken care of sick patients, critical patients. I was chasing something that I knew nothing about. And so I really put the brakes on and I knew that once you applied to the anesthesia program, it would take about 18 months to get in. So at about two and a half years, I just really focused in the books and taking care of patients and doing a big mix of of pediatric and adult medical patients and just absorbed everything I could to really understand the science of nursing, the foundation of medicine. And that's what I did. I, I applied two and a half years. I got accepted both into the Army program in San Antonio and at USU. And I was living in D.C. So those of us that got accepted to USU, Bethesda's right there. So USU is where I ended up going to the anesthesia program. So tell us about starting that program. Like what you, you step in foot the first day, you've gotten your four years under your belt of ICU nursing. Tell us about that course. What, what's involved in the training? So that was probably hands down the toughest schooling I had ever been to. One, I was very junior compared to a lot of seasoned senior nurses that, that were in the anesthesia program. And when I started that program, the depth my knowledge was, was really superficial. They really focus heavy on the science and pathophysiology and physiology. And it was during anesthesia school that a light bulb went off that I have to make it make sense. No longer can I rote memorize and pass tests. Lives are going to be in my hand. And I have to understand down to the minutia medicine. I almost became addicted to, to the knowledge because fear started to creep in. Very soon I would be graduating. Obviously, I had read about anesthesia. I had shadowed other CRNAs. I had seen the critical importance of the job that they were doing. and. That evoked a fear in me, a fear of, I have to get more and more knowledge. I've got to train. In fact, during my 18 months at Walter Reed, I never left the hospital. I literally found a room in the sixth floor, had an army cot and, and a sleeping bag. And I literally lived at that hospital for 18 months. My wife and children would come up on Sundays and visit me at the hospital, but I was taking in-residence or residency to a whole new level. And the reason I did that, for those of you that's been in the D.C. area, I lived in Annapolis, Maryland. And that would sometimes be a two and a half, three hour commute. And in my mind, I couldn't waste those three hours and not be able to study anesthesia. The schooling was fantastic, but the schooling fo focused on clinical anesthesia. The war was on us very quick, right? It had already started in Afghanistan by the time I was training, but nothing had really changed in academia. Everything was still focused on clinical anesthesia. So you're living in the hospital. Tell us what the breakdown was of the classroom, the hands-on, the clinical. How did the 18 months get divided? Well, so the program was 30 months. So you spent 12 consecutive months at Uniform Services University during the didactic phase. So all of your book knowledge was given to you up front. Once you graduated that, you then were sent to a clinical phase site. Mine happened to be back at Walter Reed. So I was very familiar with, with the stomping grounds at that hospital. During that 18 months, you're 100% clinical. So every morning, 
5, 5.15 in the morning, you're getting up, you're setting up your operating room, you're getting everything ready. 6.30, you're going to morning report where your instructors are, are questioning you about your patients that you're going to have, the type of anesthesia you're going to do, basically what your plan is. Now, you're assigned to a staff member for that day. So the night before that staff member's calling you, you're going through the whole plan. So you create a plan, you go through the plan with a staff member. Then in the morning, you discuss your plan with your educators, and then you go down to the operating room and you actually perform the plan that you have now gone over three times. And then you would continue until the cases were complete. So if you were in a room that ran till three o'clock, you were typically done at three and you'd get your next day's patients and start working them up. If it was till nine o'clock, you stayed till nine o'clock. A lot of things have changed now where there's some time limits for, for doctors and nurses, but then you stayed until the cases were done. And then you would have to get your next day's patients. You would work them up and the cycle would repeat. And that was every single day for 18 months. And for me, living there just gave me an extra edge to really get good at what I was trying to learn. So there's also an anesthesia residency that's at Walter Reed. How did they divide who your staff was and how much interaction did you have with the residents during your training? So Walter Reed was doing a lot of cases. There were four of us that went to phase two, they call it the clinical phase. Within the first two months, two of the four of us had already washed out of the program. So there was only me and another guy left. So the competition for rooms, they had 16 rooms running, I think, then the competition wasn't huge. So the staff would work amongst themselves. It was completely blinded to me. And the residents would get certain cases. We'd get certain cases. Of course, throughout the training program, you had to meet mile markers. So you had to do so many neuro cases and so many hearts. And a lot of times, Walter Reed, we had cases that didn't meet the requirements to become a certified registered nurse anesthetist. So trauma was one of them. So we would have to have a partnership. I actually went to Baltimore Shock Trauma for 30 days and got all of my trauma and craniotomies and damage control surgery at Baltimore Shock Trauma. And we had to do regional anesthesia and the residents were doing the bulk of the regional anesthesia at Walter Reed. So we went to Fort Meade. And we had a partnership there. So we would spend a month or two months doing regional anesthesia at Fort Meade. And the same thing down in Belborn. For OB, we didn't have OB at Walter Reed. So they sent us to Portsmouth, where uh, we would get to do laboring epidurals and, and complicated and uncomplicated OB. So the school had partnerships with different hospitals to ensure that we would get the breadth of knowledge that we needed in the clinical arena. So you've got the book smarts, you got the clinical training but you really haven't experienced what it's going to be like providing that care in a war zone. And now in 2006, you have the opportunity to deploy as a combat nurse anesthetist with the 21st cash to Abu Ghraib. Tell us about that experience and any memorable cases. While I was in training at Walter Reed, by happenstance, the Army were doing these med rats. They were They were doing these missions to third world countries for a cleft lip, cleft palate, strabismus cases. And it was by fluke during my training, both me and, and the other gentleman that was training with me, he got to go to Honduras and I got to go to El Salvador for 30 days to do pediatric strabismus cases. It was a anesthesiologist that was leading the mission and he took a resident and a student nurse anesthetist myself. And that was really the first time I had done anesthesia in what's considered a pretty austere condition. It was still in a hospital in El Salvador, but they were reusing IVs and, and we were using equipment that we were unfamiliar with. And so we had brought some field anesthesia equipment that we were muddling through. Well, I had a little bit of experience, but I had a safety net because I was a student and the anesthesiologist kind of, he owned everything and he made sure that, that everything was done right. So 88 days after I graduate from USU, I find out, well, immediately after I graduate, I find out I'm going to Fort Gordon to be a staff nurse anesthetist at Eisenhower Army Medical Center. 88 days later, I'm in Iraq. I hadn't got through the credentialing process to be a credential provider at Eisenhower prior to be being sent to a war zone. So 
The first thing was we did a train up. Now, the 21st Cache was led by then Colonel Jeffrey Clark, I believe retired Major General Jeffrey Clark, fantastic leader. You couldn't ask for a better leader, especially being a young young man going to war for the first time. And so we had train up. So we went to Fort Hood and we did the train up there and we knew we were going to be going to Abu Ghraib or half of us would be going to Abu Ghraib. The other half would be going to Camp Buka, but we the bulk of our care was going to be done with detainee operations. So I had graduated 88 days earlier. I had not done a credentialed case in a hospital by myself as a CRNA. I had passed boards. I was waiting. So we get to Baghdad International Airport and we're taking a helicopter to Abu Ghraib. Now it's me. It's a Navy anesthesiologist that had volunteered for an army slot. He had graduated six months earlier than me because they, they finished their residency in June. Mine was in December. And we had a surgeon that had just graduated his residency, a general surgeon. We had a hand surgeon that was the orthopedic surgeon, and we had a podiatrist, two OR nurses and a few techs. So that was our surgical makeup. We're flying into Abu Ghraib. We arrive. We left seat, right seat with a reserve unit that's currently there, a fantastic group of people. And then we started getting casualties. And I mean, the floodgates were open. And all of a sudden, not only am I doing one case, I have two trauma cases in the room. The ologist is doing two trauma cases in his room. We have four open bellies, one general surgeon, a podiatrist who they should write a book about, elbow deep, doing exploratory laparotomies, saving lives, a hand surgeon doing the same thing. It was kind of a misfit group of people, but it became very difficult because the op tempo didn't slow down. And I learned through trial and error. So you had asked about a memorable case. So we had got this young Marine in. So, so again, we had detainees that we were taking care of, but we also had several Marines that were being injured. It was during the time of the Battle of Fallujah. We were fairly close. In fact, the closest combat support hospital to Fallujah. So one day, I, I remember the ground kind of rumbling, and I look out the, the emergency room tent, and there's this tank flying up to the front door, and they're bringing in dead and wounded Marines. And I happen to be in bed position number one, and they bring this young Marine over who is unconscious, covered in dirt, and we began to work on him. Of course, airways my area. I open up his mouth. His mouth is completely full of rock and dirt, and I ask for a suction, right? Because what do we normally do when there's something in the airway? Well, you're not going to suck rocks and dirt out of an airway. So I remember starting to pull the rocks and dirt out of his mouth, and I'm thinking, what, what am I going to do? I've never done a surgical cricothyrotomy in my life. I don't even think I had done any practice with trainers. I've got to get this guy intubated. So I end up getting an ET tube in him, and then I've got to put a central line in him. And back then, we didn't completely understand the whole hypotensive resuscitation or hypovolemic resuscitation. We we're giving a lot of fluids, right? We weren't jumping right to blood, which we know now is, is what you should do. And we're rushing him back to the operating room because he's got a disarticulated left arm. He's got a, a big groin bleed, femoral bleed. Uh, right leg was, was heavily injured. And we're back in the operating room and I start resuscitating him heavy as, as the hand surgeon's got pressure on his femoral artery and the general surgeon opened up his, his stomach so he can cross clamp him. And this gentleman's brain starts herniating out of his skull. We didn't know he had been shot in the head. He was so covered in dirt and, and we were focusing on the extremities. So I had never seen anything like this. I had done anesthesia at Baltimore Shock Trauma, but obviously severities like this had never came in for us to deal with. So I remembered hyperventilate. I had mannitol. I had an ICU nurse, young second lieutenant holding his brains in while, while we're working on him. And. I was thinking to myself, if somebody else comes in, what are we going to do? And then we have a limited blood supply. How much blood am I going to give? 
And this was the first time where all of us on the team started having this conversation like, how far do we go? And by happenstance, there were some dust storms. We didn't get any other casualties in. He became the most critical patient. And we full court pressed and just gave him volumes of volumes of blood and, and blood products. And the surgeons did a fantastic job. And this young man lives our care in, in the role three. And so when I see your nurse flies with him to Baghdad and he ends up going to Walter Reed. Now, as you guys know, you lose track. You take care of these people that you don't know, which is much different than than how I ended my career. But at the time, you don't know any of these people and you have no idea what happens to them. Well, his father had reached out to me many, many years later. And one of the best things that's ever happened to my life is is his mom and dad. And, and he attended my retirement when I retired from the Surgeon General's office. And he's doing well. It's just that case, him surviving shifted my focus on triage categories and that you can't just give up. It was our job to send these these kids back home to their parents. And as, as difficult as it was and as many things as we did, that was one of my proudest moments was getting to see him again, living his life. So you deployed with the 21st Cash and then you transitioned to special operations nurse anesthesia and 2007, and you were in Al-Assad and Tikrit. How did that transition occur? And then how was that deployment different from the one you just described where you were at a role three? When I was with the 21st Cash, I was at a role three. So for the listeners that don't know, basically you take a civilian hospital, you paint it green, you put it in a tent, you smack it in the middle of a field surrounded by fences or HESCO barriers. and you have blood bank and you have lab and you have radiology and you have all of these extra assets and you and you have other people to help you. Now, early on the war, we started splitting those hospitals. So they weren't as big as the doctrine would say they were because we we're doing split operations. But when I got home from that deployment, I had done hundreds and hundreds, probably close to 1800 cases in the time that that we were gone. I considered myself a very seasoned now combat anesthesia provider. So throw at me what you will. And when I got home, I got an opportunity to interview for a tier one medical unit. And I went to the interview, not really understanding their mission versus the mission that I was just on. And ultimately went through their training, which was extensive, austere medical training. And emotional training. How do you do the things that we're going to be asking you to do and maintain your composure when everything around you is trying to kill you? And the success of that training was just some fantastic mentors, the senior anesthesia providers, one in particular, Jim Reed, who was my mentor. They took it upon themselves to make sure you knew everything that you needed to know to be successful. So I got home, interviewed, started training. Now I'm back in Iraq. The big difference is you're no longer practicing medicine in a hospital with protection around you. I was on target, a point of injury, doing surgical care in the back of trucks, in building of opportunities, in helicopters, in the back of strikers. And the minute the door opens and you step out onto the battlefield, you're no longer protected. That was a very eerie fearful time for me because where was the operating room? It was on my back, 107 pounds of what I thought I needed to do damage control surgery, damage control resuscitation. And there's only three other medical providers with me. So I had a surgeon, anesthesia, ER doc, and a PA. So it wasn't like there was anybody you could go to. The surgeon expected you to do damage control resuscitation and damage control anesthesia. Well, he did damage control surgery and so it was this ballet, this dance that you practiced over and over, and it's just completely different than rule three anesthesia. What would you say was one of your most memorable cases from that experience where you're outside of a kind of a more fixed tent, maybe fixed facility, now you're out at the point of injury? Probably one of my most terrifying was the first time I dealt with a military working dog. I had done some training. 
with special operations for military working dogs. But the first time that one of them gets injured and they ask you to now sedate the dog and the surgeon to operate on the dog, it's a scary moment because they're one of us. They're a soldier just like we are. This this canine had been on every mission with us. And so you want to make sure you're doing the right thing, but the anatomy is a little bit different and the anesthesia is a little bit different. And it's a small knit group that you eat with and sleep and you work out with and you're with every day. You know, it was different in the rule three. I didn't know any of the patients that we were taking care of. In the rule one, every patient I took care of was a brother in arms that I knew and I knew about their family and I knew their sleep habits and I knew because we lived together and the the canine was the same way. He was part of our family. But working on a military dog was stressful. And when I got back, I started volunteering at vet clinics and, and started learning more about canine medicine because I felt that was an area that I was weak in. So where I felt I was strong in, in human medicine, I didn't feel strong in veterinary medicine. Now, as far as human cases, we had five or six of our team get injured and one of them had had taken a sniper round through the collarbone and had blew out his left chest and we had to take care of him. It was about three degrees in Afghanistan. And that particular case, part of the problem was severe hypothermia. So how do you keep a casualty warm or HPMKs or hypothermia prevention management kits enough? And I watched a surgeon do a left lower lobectomy and faster than I could tape an endotracheal tube and ended up saving the young man's life. But you do these things that I guess just the average civilian medical provider, it's it's hard to explain to them what it's like to have four, five, six patients come in and there's only one of you. So how do you prioritize your care? How do you ensure that you're giving equal amount of attention to the casualties, and I know people listening will say, well, triage, well, triage is great when you have a bunch of help. Triage becomes exceedingly difficult when you have seven casualties and four people that are medical providers to save those seven casualties. So you start getting very ingenious on how to deliver anesthesia. For instance, I used a lot of ketamine because they would keep breathing and I could give them high doses of ketamine and kind of put them in this altered state until I could get back to them once the bleeding was was stopped. So I may have two or three casualties laying there on ketamine on the ground while we're focusing on a gentleman that we're into his chest. And I can keep looking over and and keep bumping them with with doses of anesthesia. So it's just, it's completely different. Necessity becomes the mother of invention. Jim Reed taught me that. And so you become very inventive with how you do your medicine in the field. What did you find were the biggest differences between the care you delivered in Iraq and that remote role one environment compared to Afghanistan? You mentioned the cold weather. Were there other, any other big distinctions that you noticed? Well, the, the, the biggest was we, we arrived to Sharana, which was about 8,000 feet elevation. And the first day I just, my head was killing me. I, I, I couldn't make my headache go away. I, I was feeling nauseous. I really didn't understand mountain sickness or high altitude headache or or anything about mountain. So so that was the first thing I noticed. I just physically felt drained. I felt short of breath. I, I'd go out for a run and I couldn't run like I was running because I hadn't trained at altitude. So so that was the first shock for me. The next was everything in Afghanistan was basically helicopter based. So in Iraq, we were doing a lot of ground assault movements and in strikers and vehicles and trucks. Afghanistan, all of a sudden, we moved to a helicopter platform. So where are you going to set? How much blood are you going to take? Where's your cooler going to be? Once you get off the helicopter, what can I leave on the helicopter? What what do I need to take with me? Where's the helicopter going in case we need to take casualties and, and operate in the helicopter? Am I going to have to fast rope down a rope when I do that? I'm thinking about the cube and the weight that I'm wearing because we all had to report how much weight and how much cube it was going to be. What medical supplies do you take? The biggest thing always for me in roll one, how much blood do I carry? How much fresh frozen plasma do I carry? How am I going to warm it? How am I going to thaw it? When am I going to start doing this? Do I thaw the frozen plasma before we go knowing then that I have to waste it in five days? So there was a lot of decision points because in a rule three, you had blood bank. 
in a role one, the CRNA became the blood bank. So not only were you responsible for the delivery of anesthesia, but you had this albatross around your neck called blood. And you had to make sure it was stayed at the right temperature and you had to make sure you had stable grid and up system for the battery. And you had to do checks and balances and you had to order it. And you had to go down the flight line to get it. Blood becomes this huge responsibility. And then ultimately you own the blood. How much do you take? And I'll tell you, a lot of the sleepless nights I've had are times that I chose to take four or five units and I needed 12. But you had to make that decision because you were carrying it with you. So between Afghanistan and Iraq was how we got to the patients, how we got to work. Once I got to work, we're good because we know how to do our job. And then what do we do with the casualties once we come back? Are we going to do prolonged field care? We're going to be able to evacuate them out to higher level of care. So here you are, you've, you've deployed 2006, seven, eight, nine, and now you find yourself as the senior clinical instructor for the student nurse anesthetist. Given your combat experiences, what were the major points you tried to convey to your trainees and the major lessons you learned during those, those years of combat experience? So that was a double-edged sword because in special operations, we wore a pager. And so I was at Eisenhower Army Medical Center at Fort Gordon the bulk of the time that I was that I was in special operations. So I would be home and for two weeks, 30 days, and then I was gone again. And then I'd be home. I was averaging 250 days gone a year. So my time as a clinical instructor during during that phase, it was hit and miss. But the students that I did have, I focused on minimalistic anesthesia. I, I focused on how do you think differently? So for instance, when when we would go into the operating room, everybody would want to give the same drug to induce anesthesia. They would want to turn on the gas to keep them under maintenance anesthesia. They'd want to wake them up. And my answer was no, you're not going to have a dial of gas to turn on in the austere environment. You're going to be doing total IV anesthesia. So we'll cancel that plan. And now you're going to focus on total IV anesthesia. And we're going to focus on different cocktails like propofol, ketamine, and fentanyl and, and what we call jet fuel. And how can, you, how can you deliver anesthesia by only using a finger pulse oximeter as your monitor? Now, let me be clear because I don't want people coming later after this podcast. They were always hooked up to all the monitor standard of care was always met that I was monitoring. I would have the student focus just on a pulse oximeter, the color of the lips, what the patient looked like, have them put their stethoscope, which which we have an earpiece. What does the heart rate sound like? Is the heart rate starting to come up? Is it starting to go down? So I would try to teach them this minimalistic anesthesia. Instead of focusing on all your numbers and all this data coming at you, look at the patient. See what the response the patient is having to what you're giving them. So TAVA became, total IV anesthesia became a big focus. Minimalistic anesthesia became a big focus. And then I would share the good, the bad, and the ugly. When 88 days after I graduated, I made a lot of mistakes. And I made those mistakes because I wasn't prepared for what I had to do. This is a guy that lived 18 months at a hospital that I slept, ate, and breathed anesthesia. One of the problems we have in healthcare is we we give this pseudo-confidence to doctors and nurses and they get put up on this pedestal that I've gone through medical school or I've gone through nursing school or I've gone through anesthesia school. I am the expert. That couldn't be further from the truth. You may be expert in clinical medicine, but the minute I take you out of that arena and I put you someplace you've never been in the cold, in the dark, with loud noises and gunfire around you, you resort back to primal instincts. And I've done this numerous times now throughout the years. I'll give somebody a very simple task like start an IV. I'll put night vision goggles on them. I'll put them in a dark room. I'll shoot off artillery simulators. This is somebody that's been doing IVs for 30 years, and they can't even get the package open. And and the point is not to embarrass. The point is just because you've been a doctor or nurse for 30 years, if you haven't had this experience, if you haven't trained, if you haven't taken this portion of your career to the highest level, when things go bad, you now know what you're going to resort back to. So now we got to train you through those stressors. Is it something that you can always train or is it something that sometimes people just have? Kind of like 
taking G-forces as a pilot. Some people just, you can't train somebody who can't handle G-forces. Is there a certain type of person who you can't train how to function in that kind of austere environment, or is everybody trainable? So I think that would be a great research study. Are there biopers for people that have enhanced coping mechanisms, that have the ability to handle stress? Probably there, there's something to that, right? We talk about different personalities. A lot of people that migrate into the medical field may have type A personalities, may be a little bit predisposed to handle stresses like the sight of blood or or a wound that that maybe a general population couldn't. That being said, I focused the last decade of my life on on austere training. And the greatest equalizer is water. And I developed a dive medicine program where we take medical students and nurses. And in two weeks, we take them through an entire scuba diving portion where all they know how to swim is so we teach them open water, advanced open water, water rescue, high angle rescue. Then we put them through a very large medical portion, medical rescue, in water medical rescue, boat rescue, high angle rescue, ship rescue, and then prolonged field care. And we started putting some heart rate monitors on these students just to see if we could do what you said. Can we, can you take anybody and stress inoculate them to be able to do fine motor skills? under extremis. There's three environments that I've focused my training on that do just that. So in two weeks, I can take somebody that's heart rate gets up to 160, 170 in a swimming pool with a breathing apparatus and just putting their head underwater, inability to do fine motor movements. You start asking them questions. They can't answer simple, basic questions that, that they should know. At the end of two weeks, they're going down 100 feet, finding a body, placing tourniquets underwater, bringing the body up, rigging ropes to rescue, do a high-angle rescue, bring them onto a ship platform, perform a march survey, do damage control resuscitation. We have them do surgical cricotherotomies out on out, out on a vessel on pig, pig, pig trachs. I'm 100% convinced that the vast majority are trainable. Are there those that I could not successfully train? Now, Dr. Wedmore and I, we have trained probably close to 2,000 students, and I've had four that I couldn't get through the stress inoculation phase that just could not do it. And everything we tried, I just could not get those individuals. So I think it's a very trainable skill. Those environments that I spoke of is, is most certainly maritime and water, most certainly mountain. When, when, when you're looking at rappelling and high angle mountain movement and cold weather, when we do our cold weather medicine course. A, the sole focus of the students is I am freezing to death. My hands are cold. My face is cold. I'm shivering. We're climbing up the side of this mountain or we're climbing up ice waterfalls to do this high angle rescue. The environment's trying to kill you, but yet you got to be a doctor or you got to be a nurse. So those three environments, mountain, cold weather, and dive, I think 100% starts developing the resiliency and emotional readiness that military providers need to be successful in austere conditions. Now, in the clinical arena, I most certainly think pediatrics evoke that response. I think for the average person that does pediatric anesthesia or, or is involved in a pediatric case, I think it invokes those same stressors I get underwater. And I think the same goes for complicated OB. I think you get those same type of feelings that you do in some of my training. You mentioned earlier that one of your major limitations in providing care in austere locations is that you have to carry all of the stuff that is going to be with you. So when you're talking to a younger CRNA who hasn't deployed or doesn't have the experience you have, what are the must-haves? If they're going to, they've got this many pounds that they have to, that they can carry, what, what do they have to have that you say, this got to go in your bag, can't live without that? So if you think about your responsibility is to save a life, and I teach this to our students, it's very easy to save somebody's life. You have to do three things. Air has to go in and out. Blood has to go round and round, and you have to keep them warm. Now, in a 
And and that directly correlates with the triad of death for the medical folks listening to this. If you're the CRNA in a small mission unit or you're going over to Africa in an expeditionary surgical team and those three become your responsibility, right? It becomes a medical team's responsibility, but you're going to be the one getting air in and out. Blood going round and round is going to be the surgeon and the team effort and, and keeping them warm is everybody's effort. So the first thing you got to make sure in your pack is you have the items that you can make air go in and out. For me, my protocol was, and, and I think it should be for any anesthesia provider, if I look once and can't orally intubate, I did a surgical cricotherotomy. In the field environment, I didn't carry all the adjuncts on the difficult airway algorithm. I carried ET2 and I carried surgical cricotherotomies. Surgical cricotherotomy is an exceedingly easy thing to do, horrifically terrifying, and people make it out to be far more complicated than it actually is. So airway, obviously, I want to take some airway adjuncts. Blood's got to go round and round. Well, I want to make sure that I have the ability to make it go round and round. So I'm going to have tourniquets. I'm going to have bleeder kits. I'm going to, I'm going to carry dressing. I'm going to carry a small pack of things that, that is going to assist me. Now, part of that means I've got to also give them blood, right? That's why time is of the essence when you save somebody. Why do we put tourniquets on care under fire? Because time's of the essence. That blood's got to keep going around. That's your oxygen carrying capacity. That's why you do that. The longer you wait, now you got to start giving blood. So in your pack, if you're responsible for the blood, then you got to think, what does it take to deliver? What does it take to warm up? What does it take to thaw it if you're, if you're carrying frozen plasma? How am I going to deliver it? But then that starts taking you down a rabbit hole. Do I have to take a pump? Do I have to take a heater? Do I have to take batteries? Do I have to take charger? Am I going to have grid power? So each one of these items becomes, what's the tail to this item? So if I say blood's got to go round and round, you got to stop the blood. You got to pack the area. You got to deliver the blood. Then what's the tail to make that happen? And the last, you got to keep them warm. And so am I going to carry hypothermia prevention management kit? Am I going to carry a blizzard blanket? Am I, how am I going to prevent further cooling? Because right, you're never going to, you guys know this, you're never going to actively rewarm in a field environment. You're preventing the casualty from getting cooler. So your ability to be resilient and ignore all the environmental stressors lets you focus on these three simple tasks. Now, you're going to say, man, you're a CRNA, you're anesthesia. I asked you what you should tell an anesthesia to put in their bag. You didn't mention any anesthetics. Well, I'm giving you the core things you need to save a life. Pain has never killed anybody in the history of ever. Sometimes pain is your friend because it keeps those compensatory mechanisms going. Now, that being said, you need to carry an anesthetic that's light, that's that's heat and cold stable, that inside and out. My go-to that I carried in my bag was ketamine, Versed, a paralytic, and now that's what I carry. Now, I had a few other adjunct drugs and I carried some calcium from the blood I was giving and some other things, but my primary go-to was heavy on the Versed, ketamine, fentanyl, and if I was transporting, I would give them a paralytic. You can, ounces is pounds and pounds is a whole lot of tons. You need to start asking yourself, what do you need? Then you need to make a packing list and you need to stick to it. Because inevitably, the thing that special ops did is we had packing lists. And if it said 10 alcohol pads, we put 10 alcohol pads. You didn't have 11. You didn't have nine. You had 10. And you started hearing to those rigid, rigid compliances. And next thing, you can get yourself pared down to a pretty good, weight that you can carry. Now, the only monitor I carried was a pulse oximeter and an entitled CO2, a little known in one that was small. I did all of my anesthetics with a finger pulse oximeter because what does it tell me? It tells me is air going in and out. It tells me is blood going round and round. It tells me is my patient getting too cold? Well, how's it telling me that? Because of vasoconstriction of the fingers, if I'm getting a pulse oximeter reading, I know that the, the end of the capillary beds of the finger are perfusing. So I'm kind of monitoring my tension. So that's the way I did it. Everybody has a little different spin. Everybody takes something a little bit different, but that's what I did. So you're now the special assistant for, to the president for operational medicine at USU. Tell us about that position. So Uniform Services University has the best of all worlds. It's a tri-service 
joint environment where healthcare providers come to become doctors, to become advanced practice nurses, to become scientists. And it's a melting pot of the services under one umbrella called the Uniform Services University. And while they're there, though they're learning to be clinical doctors and advanced practice nurses and the ability to provide care and to go on to a residency, at the end of the day, they wear the uniform. And the reason they wear the uniform is to save lives downrange in a deployed setting, whether it's deployed to humanitarian missions, whether it's deployed to combat, whether it's deployed for whatever reason. That's why we wear the uniform. That's why Uniform Services University exists, to train those to care for those in harm's way. That's their tagline. So as special assistant to the president for operational medicine, my role is to look at the system as a whole and help guide the vision and the strategy to ensure that when students graduate, that they are exposed to the tools that they need to be successful for the next phase of their education, their next phase in life. Now, that's a very difficult thing because as you mentioned earlier, there's no magic pill. There's no one course you can go to. There's no university in the world that can spend four years and make you an expert to, to go in some of the conditions that I just spoke that I was in. But the university has the unique opportunity to build that foundational basis of knowledge, skills, and abilities required for them to then expand their knowledge. If you are a military medical provider, you have to now own that title and spend the rest of your time training and getting better, seeking out opportunities, looking to the services, looking to the civilian sector to continue to hone and refine your skills and cross-train with other medical providers that are in different specialties. And so at the university, I have, a, I have the unique opportunity to be a part of that process. So so what do we currently have? How have we expanded since I have trained? And then what does the future look like? And it's a process to be able to define readiness has not been done. To be able to put a metric or a measurable value against is somebody, if I send person X into this environment, will they be successful? That hasn't been able to be measured yet. So, so. Part of this is not only training, but what research ought we be doing? How should we be scientifically looking at readiness? How should readiness be defined? What should be some core courses that every military provider has to go experience? And then, and then how do we track that over time? And if I give you this skill or I, or I educate you on this skill, how long will you retain that information before you need to be either be retrained or re-exposed? So I had developed a model called COPE, C-O-P-E, and stands for Clinical, Operational, Physical, and Emotional Readiness. So four phases of readiness. So it gives you the ability to, to break apart readiness into, into four different categories. And clinical readiness is really your standard KSAs, your knowledge, skills, and abilities. What volume and acuity and diversity of cases are you doing at your hospital within the service? And that's, that's the focus on, on clinical medicine. Well, then operational is how do you take that skill set as a urologist or an anesthesiologist or a, a nurse? And how do you translate that into an operational environment where you don't have all the bells and whistles and, and, and tools that you had back at the hospital? So that's a transitional piece. And then physical readiness is, are you physically able to perform that job? You may be physically physically able to go to a roll three where you air a helicopter brought everything into you, but can you put 110 pounds on your back, carry an operating room and go through a mountainous environment with an offset and fill of a mission? So there's going to be some different physical readiness for, for depending on your environment. And then, and then last, which I quite frankly think is the most important is emotional readiness and emotional readiness for a medical provider. I want to be able to finish my job and know in my heart that I've done 
everything possible to ensure success with that casualty, that patient. And if there is a glitch in that thought process, that's what I believe leads to moral injury in healthcare providers. That's what I believe enhances traumatic stress disorder in medical providers. They went into a situation either assuming that they were prepared or not prepared and thrown into that situation, not willingly, and now they're struggling to do their best. And they continually reflect back on the trial and error process. And I'll speak for myself. To this day, it's been decades. I still do what I think back. Could I have done something different? And I think that becomes a big problem within our medical community. I think it's very important that that we share how we feel, what we've been through. We have to support each other and we have to share those stories for not only the people that were there at the time and for their healing, but also share those stories, the good and the bad with the junior providers so they can learn from them to not repeat the same situation that we were in. So emotional readiness, I believe 100% can be trained. I think you can increase your resiliency. And and so how do we go about this training? And, and that comes to the second model, which is READY, R-E-T-E. And what that stands for is while you're training and, and then while you become staff and, and throughout your career in military medicine or medicine, you have to maintain current. So how do you attain your currency? So a lot of people throw these different terms around and want to build metrics off of them. So, so this is what I've come up with with 30 years of experience. So, so how you mean current is the R of ready, which is research. That becomes your evidence-based practice. As research expands and changes and new information comes out, you have to have the ability to absorb and understand that new research and and share in in conferences and, and committees that knowledge. So then how do you become competent? Well, that becomes your education. So your initial education starts building your basis of competency, but it's really continuing education and, and continuing to learn things that you didn't know builds and leads to competency. And then how do you become, so E-education is, is the second E of ready, R-E-T-E. And so then what's the T? That's training. So now you've got this current research, evidence-based information. You've read on it. You've studied it. You've educated yourself. So now what do you got to do? You got to put it into practice. So now you start training and you train it over and over again. Well, Matt, I want to learn surgical cricothyrotomies, but I had a 20-year career and never did one. So how do I do that? Well, you create models and you use simulation and you find other means to develop that muscle memory. So you can set up a simple trainer, go through it every day, the steps of a surgical cricothyrotomy. When the stress hits, you can do those movements with your hands and be successful. The fear goes away because what to do. So that's part of training. So that, that training then, that leads to proficiency. So you become proficient through your training. And the last D of ready is exposure. So what does that mean? That means I'm now going to take this research, this education, this training, and I'm going to start exposing it into different environments. I'm going to set my my surgical crack trainer up on my nightstand, set an alarm, have my wife wake me up at two o'clock in the morning saying, I need an airway. And I, in a haze of fog, I'm going to do a surgical cricothyrotomy on my trainer in the dark at night. I feel with minimal light. I'm exposing myself to that environment. I'm exposing myself to cold. I'm exposing myself to maritime. So what does that do? Well, that starts building resiliency. So if people want to talk about currency and competency and, and, and proficiency and resiliency, I would encourage them to use this model to start framing their research, their studies, and, 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 and how they approach readiness. Because otherwise, it just becomes a word that everybody uses. It becomes a buzzword. And nobody really means knows what it means, and nobody knows how to define it. What I'm attempting to do is, and I'm not saying this is right. This is Matt Welder's idea, 30 years, conceptual or theoretical model. I'm saying we have to start somewhere. 
and start defining and, and laying out parameters so we can intelligently speak about military readiness. Well, we've been speaking with retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Matthew D. Welder on Wardock's podcast. Matt, just thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights, and, and thank you for your service. Great stuff. Well, I certainly appreciate it, and, and I love that you guys have this podcast. I think you are capturing some very important information. People can go back and listen to your podcast and get lessons learned from those of us that may not be in front of of the future from on a day-to-day basis. So I thank you guys for the efforts and what you're doing. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.